0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chinden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Rabbi Brian Stoller. Rabbi Brian Stoller joined Omaha's Temple Israel as senior rabbi in 2017. Rabbi Stoller received his ordination from Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion's Cincinnati campus in 2008, and served as Associate Rabbi of Congregation BJBE in Deerfield, Illinois, from 2008 to 2017. He grew up in Houston, Texas, and earned a business and finance degree from the University of Texas at Austin in 1996. Before entering rabbinic school, Rabbi Stoller spent seven years in professional politics, working on campaigns in Texas, Colorado, and Illinois, and serving as press secretary to then-U.S. Senator Peter Fitzgerald of Illinois in Washington, D.C. from 1999 to 2003. Rabbi Stoller is currently pursuing a doctorate in Halakha, Jewish law, and is an active member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Rabbi Stoller, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here.
0: Given the breadth of religious doctrine and its practice, and so this is a challenging question. Um, yet, could you give me, as someone who knows little about Judaism, an introduction to the faith and maybe its historical context?
1: Sure. So, um, so Judaism is uh, is one of the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, we call it um, an Abrahamic tradition because we are part of a family of religious traditions, which includes uh, Christianity and Islam as well, all of which trace our uh, spiritual heritage back to uh, the patriarch Abraham, who's the founder of uh, of our religious tradition. So standing on one foot, Judaism is uh, based on the idea that there is one God who is infinite, eternal, and encompasses everything. God's unity is unlike the unity of anything else that we can possibly think of. God is not only one, but God is everything and everything is God. Our tradition is uh, based on the idea that the Jewish people are in covenant with God. We have a relationship whereby uh, God has um, made a uh, uh, an agreement with us, so to speak, and we with God, that the one God of the universe will be our god and our partner and our friend and uh and we will serve that one god by performing the commandments that god gives us in the torah which is our sacred text and this uh this relationship this covenantal relationship is uh, very much like a marriage you know a modern covenant that uh, we know in our world today uh, where it's mutual Um, a marriage uh, demands faith, faithfulness, action, and love on the part of both partners. Uh, And our relationship with God is like a marriage, and we are faithful to God. We uh, give our hearts to God. We serve God with our being. We love God with all that we have, and God loves us as well. Uh, That's uh, basically the fundamental religious framework of Judaism. Historically, our tradition is the oldest of the Abrahamic faith traditions, dating back several thousand years to the ancient Israelites. Our story is told in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Abraham was called by God to step into the unknown and follow this call that he received to, uh, to change the world and to discover Uh, spirituality in a way as yet unknown to humankind, where he discovered the one God and pursued this covenantal relationship. Our people, uh, then descendants of Abraham, were enslaved in Egypt and then freed by God through the hand of Moses, led through the wilderness uh, into the Promised Land, and we have uh, grown as a nation and as a people ever since then.
0: So you mentioned the Torah, as the primary biblical text for Judaism, and that again, to the layman, has as it were companions in other religions, and so that might be the Quran in for, for Islamic, it could be the Bible for Christians. How do these scriptural works, as it were, sit in the same family?
1: Sure. So, um, so what we call the Torah consists of the five books of Moses: Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those books are part of a larger collection known as the Hebrew Bible. Uh, The Hebrew Bible is what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. It's the same same text. Uh, So we we have a, a foundational text in common with our Christian brothers and sisters. The difference in Christianity is that Christianity also has the New Testament. The Gospels and the and the letters of Paul that consist an additional layer of an additional layer on top of what Christians refer to as the Old Testament and we call the Hebrew Bible. So Christianity and Judaism share sacred texts in common. The Quran is um, is a different text, although it uh, it consists of many of the same traditions and stories that are to be found in the Hebrew Bible. Abraham, which uh, uh, who uh, Muslims call Ibrahim, is the same figure. Uh, he is the father of, uh, of the Muslims as well. And many of the same stories that are found in the Hebrew Bible about Abraham and his descendants are also found in the Quran, told from the Muslim perspective. So the three Abrahamic faith traditions really share a common body of not only text, but foundational stories, traditions, and principles, namely, and most importantly, the principle of monotheism, the worship of the one God of the universe, and the idea that all of us in our own particular way are in relationship with that God.
0: You are studying halakha, which is Jewish 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 law. law, and the media gets into a lather about Sharia, Islamic law. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about both aspects the, the nature of what you're studying and its relevance to your faith and maybe the world at large, and maybe how it fits into the general premise that most religions have some kind of doctrine that guides how people should live their lives and behave.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm working on a, a PhD in halacha, which is Jewish law. Um, Judaism at its core, is a law-based religion, which means that um, the, the framework of law or a, a set of norms um, is, uh, is the way in which the Jew interacts in the world and, and discovers God and carries out, lives out our relationship with God halakha jewish law is is all encompassing in the sense that it is a it is a framework for living that addresses not only religious practice per se specifically prayer and ritual but also uh, our involvement in commerce and uh our relationships with our neighbors and um the justice system. It, it, it's an all-encompassing system. Um, I love the study of halakha uh, because, uh, well, I'll, I'll draw on, a, on, on something that a, uh, a contemporary secular legal theorist uh, wrote by the name of Robert Cover, who was a Jew, but uh, a professor of law at Yale. Cover said that the law is the bridge between uh, the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. So I think of law as um, as an expression of values and ideals uh, and principles that we as human beings seek to realize uh, in the world and, and bring into being. I mean if you follow Covers Metaphor, you cross the bridge. We ultimately strive for a world in which law is not necessary, because the, the the principles embodied in the law have 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 been realized. So, um so I I I like this. I I like halacha for that reason, because uh, it teaches a philosophy not only of religious practice, but but of life generally. You know, I don't I don't really know much about Sharia. Um it's something that I hope to learn more from my Muslim friends and the tri faith initiative. I'm sure that Sharia Halacha are, are are similar in terms of kind of what they aim to do again, which is to be a framework for living that uh that is is a guide to meaning and purpose for the Jew or for the Muslim and I think it's sad you know just to hear the way Muslim law is denigrated in uh in you know, kind of popular culture and discourse, political discourse these days, I'm sure it's unfair. Um, I, I think that I think the system of, of religious law has uh, has a lot to teach us, and uh, not only as Jews, but uh, as people seeking to discover uh, meaning and purpose uh, in in the ordinary um, modes of daily living.
0: mentioned the pedigree in terms of the age over millennia for the faith of Judaism, and also this kinship, as it were, with other major global religions. Yet we, I think, live in an age where it feels really pronounced, but I would imagine that this has been true over the ages, that an antipathy towards either the Jewish people or Judaism as a faith has marked this history for millennia. Why is that the case? What is this history of antipathy towards towards this faith and its people?
1: Well, you you're right. Antisemitism or hatred of Jews because we are Jews has been a scourge of uh of humanity for thousands of years ever since the birth of uh of the Jewish people. There are uh so many different theories out there about why antisemitism, but One idea that I find really compelling is one that was articulated by the uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre in the middle of the last century. He wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew, and Sartre said famously that if the Jew did not exist, the anti-Semite would invent him, meaning anti-Semitism is a spiritual, emotional, intellectual sickness it's a sickness of those who possess it. It really has nothing to do with Jews and everything to do with those who hate. Um, and I think that I, I think that in trying to understand the phenomenon of of hatred and bigotry of any kind, really, that um, it's important to understand that that's the case. the uh, the object of hatred is never the one to blame. there's there there's nothing that... Uh, that Jews or any other particular group that is uh, that that is the object of hatred has done to earn the hatred. This uh, this is a a sickness that lives in the mind and in the heart of those who hate.
0: Abstractly, we can think about those moments historically where where this has been extremely pronounced. Whether we think about the Holocaust or any any other moment where this has been horrifically displayed. But we have to deal in the real world with the times we live in. And there are people right now who are experiencing this kind of uh, hatred, which makes me then want to ask you, how are you and your congregation having to live with and adapt to and deal with the more overt anti-Semitism that I think we seem to be reading about is increasing in the last few years in, in our lived experience?
1: It's true that uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise uh, in America and around the world. Uh, as I said, it's something that's uh, that's been with humanity uh, for thousands of years. It's sadly, it's it's always there. Sometimes it's it's latent. Sometimes it's more active. Some human beings have um, have a need to hate. And it is a uh, it is a reality that we have to cope with, and not only us, but uh, many many human beings of, um, of 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 all different backgrounds and and traditions uh, and identities experience. As Jews, you know, I think that our history, a collective history and collective consciousness of having lived with the reality of anti-Semitism for so long, makes us vigilant toward it. We are keenly aware of the, um, uh, of the indicators of, of anti-Semitism, of the kind of language, kinds of actions that are, um, that are dangerous to us. And, uh, and as a Jewish community, we are constantly vigilant uh, about it. We have a wonderful organization, not only here in Omaha, but uh, a national organization called the Anti Defamation League, whose mission is to uh, stand up and combat anti Semitism and and hatred and bigotry uh, generally, because as Jews, we understand that it's never only about us. It's never only about us. You know, there's a. there's a a famous poem written by a, a Christian minister during the Nazi period where he said, to paraphrase, first they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't say anything. And then they came you know for the homosexuals and I wasn't a homosexual so I didn't say anything and then they came for the african americans and I I'm not african american so I didn't say anything and then they came for me and there was nobody left to to speak up for me and that idea uh, lives i think very much in the consciousness of of modern jews that it's our responsibility to stand up against hatred and be vigilant not only for our own selves and well-being but for uh, for everybody who is the victim of hatred.
0: I'm going to switch gears and jump back to the beginning. Um, I think you have a fascinating story that turns at the beginning of this century. And so that means I need to go back with you to the beginning. So I want to ask, what was your childhood like?
1: Well, my childhood was a wonderful childhood. I grew up in Houston, Texas. and
0: That's a disqualifier, right? there. Yeah, yeah. right.
1: <laughs> a Texan in <laughs> Nebraska. <laughs> um, but I, I did grow up in a wonderful family in, in Houston. My family um, was a, we were members of a reformed Jewish congregation in Houston. In fact, my great grandfather is one of the founders of our synagogue. Um, we were engaged with the synagogue, though not um, particularly um, religiously active, uh, a little bit, but um, but not much. Uh, as uh, as I was growing up, uh, and it never occurred to me uh, when I was a child to become a rabbi. The idea never entered my mind until I was in my mid twenties. Um, actually, I had uh, I had other ideas for my for my life, and as you mentioned, I, I, I went in after college into politics because that was my passion uh, from the time that I was in high school.
0: What I want to picture is this typical youthful child who maybe had a little mischief here but was otherwise an ordinary kid over here just finding his way. What was entertaining you or driving you or inspiring you when, when you were a teenager?
1: Well, I have always been somebody who loves to learn. Um, and I had a group of friends throughout my whole life. Who we're still best friends. Uh, have been since elementary school. All of us are kind of uh, the same in the sense that we um, we love intellectual challenge and. Um, we like to, you know, to achieve and to be good family people. We we weren't we didn't get into trouble in high school. <laughs> we uh, we weren't troublemakers. Uh, we weren't particularly adventurous, um, but you know we uh, we were the good kids. Um, and uh, and I always loved to learn. And so, what captured me when I was a young adult, I I went into politics, and I went into politics because of my uh, kind of the passion for. For knowledge and, um, and analysis and the policy making and so forth, um, that really captivated me. When I was in working in Washington in the U.S. Senate, um, I had, I made a friend in my office who was a, uh, an evangelical Christian. And I was the only Jewish person that she knew. And she was curious about Judaism and, you know, asked me questions uh, about Judaism, and at that particular time in my life, I was not really engaged in Jewish life uh, in, in any kind of significant way. Just wasn't part of uh, of who I was then. But the feeling that I had of being ignorant in response to her questions—I didn't feel like I could answer her intelligently. That. That grabbed me because I didn't like feeling that way. I've never liked um, feeling ignorant. I've always uh, prided myself on being knowledgeable and learned. So that was the, uh, that was the experience, this relationship with my friend Susan, that made me realize, you know what I need to learn about Judaism because I should know this. I'm a Jew, I should know this and, and I don't like not knowing. So I called up my rabbi from home, and I asked him to recommend some books for me to read. He gave me a, a, a great reading list. I, I went to the bookstore in D.C. in my neighborhood, because back then you went to bookstores. I got the books and started reading. And my reading just opened up this whole world to me of Judaism that I had no idea existed. And it really captured my, my mind and my spirit and uh, in a way that i had not expected
0: how did that experience sit with you in juxtaposition to being involved in politics
1: well i i loved my work in politics and i loved the and still do uh, the the senator that i worked for peter fitzgerald who was a man of the highest integrity and to my mind, the ideal kind of public servant who's in it for all the right reasons. Um, I really enjoyed what I was doing. At the same time, and here I was in my mid-20s, I had this sense, and I was not able to articulate it at that time, um, but I had this sense that the, the politics was not my life's work, that I, was, I, I had a higher calling, um, I had a, a purpose. Um, I, I I I felt like there was a a better version of myself, just yearning to come into being again. Did I did not speak in those terms back then. This is in retrospect, but that's that that's what I felt. Um, and 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 Susan, my friend, was really an angel in my life. I believe because she came uh, into my life. I think to kindle this spark in me. Um, we only worked together for six months and then she moved on, but without her, I, I definitely would not have been on this path. Um, but I guess in terms of the relationship with politics and the rabbinate, I, I, I just, you know, I think both are in their, in their highest kind of, um, incarnations are, um, about service, you know, service and, um, and, principle, and um, integrity. Of course, in politics, I, I feel like that's that's so often wanting. And one of the reasons I, I came to realize that that wasn't my life's work. But um, that, that's the person that I had always wanted to be. And it just took, uh, 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 it just took it's been a journey to kind of discover it. Um, but the, 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 the relationship with my friend Susan set me on that path.
0: The minor fall and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
1: Hallelujah. 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 And then there were two other events that caused the, me to. To really take action. One was 9-11. So I was working on Capitol Hill on 9-11. And um, I could see the Pentagon burning from my office window. And that was a very scary day for me and all my colleagues on the Hill. Um, And then about a year later, a friend that I had grown up with since first grade passed away from brain cancer at age 28. I was 28 at the time, too. And those two events made me realize that life is fragile. We don't know how long we're going to be here. And I had this idea kind of percolating of what I was supposed to do with my life. And I, I felt like, you know what? I just need to do it. I had sat on it for several years, and um, I just needed to do it. And I stepped into this world of kind of pursuing the the rabbinate, which I, truthfully, I had very little understanding of what it was or what it involved or what I was getting myself into, but it just felt like it was what I needed to do. And that's why I believe in, and you know, so many in the clergy uh, speak of having a calling. Um, I feel that way because, um, just like Abraham, our biblical spiritual ancestor who was called by God in Hebrew, the Torah said, God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, which means go, just go. You don't know where you're going. Abraham did not know where he was going. He's following this God that he heretofore had no knowledge of into the mystery. And it's just about faith, taking a leap of faith and just going. That for me is is what it was. I just felt like I needed to go and pursue this. And in retrospect, it was the best decision I ever made other than marrying my wife and having a family. This is definitely what I was meant to do.
0: So there is the intellectual pursuit of deep understanding of of this faith, which is one part of uh, studying and becoming a rabbi. There is also one's personal approach to how one observes their faith. So you have this own personal practice of, of your faith. But becoming a rabbi and, and heading an institution means that you are also responding to a call to minister to a congregation of, of people. And I think that's a very different kind of demand and that's a different kind of response from you at age 28 to think i don't just want to be intellectually pursuing this faith for myself as well but i'm going to minister to people and you've used the word service how um did you come to that decision that this ministering part of this calling was important and and how do you go about this um practice as a senior rabbi of ministering to to your people
1: sure um so that that uh, was a journey for me too. When uh, Rabbinic school is um, mainly, probably like um, seminaries for other faith traditions, uh, is very focused on, on the academic side of religion, which is, when I went into it, is exactly what I was looking for. I, you know, I, I love that, the intellectual challenge. One of the things that um, that we do as rabbinic students, though, in addition to our studies, is um, we, we serve as student rabbis at s- small congregations around the country. There are a lot of, a lot of small Jewish congregations in towns that, around America that people prob- most people have never heard of that uh, have little communities and they don't have enough resources to employ a full-time rabbi. So they um, they engage in a relationship with the seminary where they get a student to come once or twice a month on the weekends and basically be their rabbi, you know, lead services and teach classes and visit people in the hospital. And it's mutually beneficial because the congregation gets somebody to... You know, to be a spiritual leader for them, and the students get training. so i had um I had two student congregations when I was a rabbinic student. My first one was in a small town uh, in southeast Arkansas called McGee. I used to I, I would go from Cincinnati on the weekends, fly to Little Rock, Arkansas, and then drive two hours to this little town of McGee. And then uh, my second congregation was in Joplin, Missouri a little bit larger and i uh, and i was the student rabbi in joplin for 3 years so it was it was through my experiences as a student rabbi in these in these small communities where i learned uh the to to love you know the ministry as you put it um just being with people and walking the spiritual path with them and being part of uh, people's lives. It's, it's a very profound um, kind of experience. Before I uh, applied to rabbinic school, I was thinking about it. I went to meet with a, a rabbi in Washington where, where I was living to talk to him about it. And he said to me then, um, the rabbinate is the most meaningful way that he could imagine living his life. And he said, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, you should do that. And, the, the, and those those things, uh, those two words, uh, pieces of advice have really stuck with me, That um, that it absolutely is the most meaningful way that I can imagine living because I have the great privilege of being part of people's lives in ways that Virtually nobody else outside their their families and closest circle of friends ever gets to experience other people. And at the same time, being a rabbi being a minister, a clergy person to a community is a very uh, demanding role, not only in terms of the energy and the time and so forth that goes into it, but emotionally, spiritually... It's, it, 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 it's a very demanding role because it is a sacred duty. So when the rabbi I spoke to you said, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, you should do that, um, I think is very apropos, but I really cannot imagine myself doing anything else. So um, I consider it uh, to be an incredible honor and a great privilege to be a rabbi to a congregation. And uh, I do feel that it's the purpose for which I was created.
0: So it makes me wonder about um, those skills that are required. So on the one hand, there's this deep, this profound divine calling upon you to fulfill this meaning in your life, and and that is majestic. Then backing away from that, you have a job to do, and so it brings to mind the skills that you might need. And before we came on air, we were chatting, which actually meant that you were asking me questions and then listening deeply to what I was saying to you. And that was great for me because now we have the mics in front of us. I get the pleasure of actually asking the questions. But it seemed clear to me that you avail yourself of the person in front of you and ask questions and listen deeply. So it seems to me that you are a profoundly interested and open, active listener. That must be one skill to being a good rabbi. What are some of the other skills that make you a good minister.
1: Hmm. Well, the rabbinate is, uh, and the ministry, I think, is such a broad-based field that we do so many different things in any one given day. There's this um, this one rabbi uh, that I admire deeply. It was, uh, from my childhood. He gave uh, an address to the ordination class of Hebrew Union College in 1960, which I had the privilege of listening to a recording of it. And he said that uh, the life of a rabbi is so varied in terms of the work that we do. You're called to, uh, on any given day, to go from a, uh, a baby naming to a wedding to a funeral and a bar mitzvah and meetings with the board and pastoral counseling and committee meetings and volunteer work, um, all in a, in a given day. Um, he He said the the one word that gives unity to the function of a rabbi is the word shepherd i love that he said because it, because to be a shepherd is to be a, is to be a guide you know to um to help people discover meaning and purpose in their lives through the many different uh Portals that Judaism offers to to those things. Um, so I, I guess uh, you know, above all, the the skill set is about being present in whatever it is that I that I do, and um, kind of investing myself in in people and and being there to uh, to empower them and to guide them on. On their path, that's the the spiritual calling. I think you're right that to be a, a rabbi and and particular a senior rabbi or a senior minister of a uh, of an organization is um, is also a very kind of practical role. You know, Temple Israel is a congregation of 685 families. We're a large institution, and as the senior rabbi, I function essentially as the CEO of the organization, which, uh, you know, is, I guess, in, in, in one sense is, is very different from the spiritual work of the ministry or the rabbinate. It's about leading an organization and managing people and setting a vision. What I strive to do, and this is a learning curve for me because I've only been in my role as senior rabbi for a year and a half, but I, I think what I'm what I'm striving for is to blend the two and to, and to bring a, um, a a sense of spirituality, purpose, service, um, and meaning to the day-to-day work of leading an organization. I, you know, I, I try to cultivate a sense in in our organization that we are. Engaged in sacred work, you know. It's it's not ordinary work, and it's oftentimes it's not the kind of work that you you can come from nine to five and then go home and leave it at the office. This is sacred work. It is about people's lives, their their spiritual lives, their connection with with God. Um, They're discovering the purpose for which they were created it's it's sacred work so it is a challenge. in Judaism we have this idea um that uh there's there're kind of two realms so so, uh, so to speak uh, kind of the ordinary and the and the holy and sometimes they're separate you know you're either in the holy or you're in the ordinary but i think that in the work of be, of leading a synagogue it's about learning how to kind of Bring holiness into the ordinary, uh, even as you also have to bring the ordinary into the holy.
0: I really like how you've talked about straddling uh, some of these two worlds, the spiritual um, and uh, the, well, with your business and communications background, uh, this CEO aspect of leading an organization. I know that uh, Temple Israel is a part of the Tri-Faith Initiative, and listeners to this show will recall that Bud Heckman, who's the executive director of Tri-Faith as that uniting entity, He was on the show, and listeners can hear that by listening back to uh, the podcasts. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about Temple Israel's role in Tri-Faith from your perspective.
1: Sure. So uh, the Tri-Faith Initiative is a a bold and uh, unique experiment in uh, interfaith cooperation. Three congregations, our Mm -hmm. Jewish congregation— Countryside Community Church and the American Muslim Institute have come together and formed a consortium, the Tri-Faith Initiative, um, which is centered on this uh, idea of the three congregations creating a special ongoing uh, relationship with each other. We are co-located uh, on a uh, on the, what we call the Tri-Faith Commons in Omaha. We live together as uh, part of a neighborhood of faith communities. It's really very exciting, and there's nothing like it in, uh, in, in America, and um, not quite like it even in the world, you know. Um, in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, um, I've, I've thought about it like this. At various points throughout history, Christians, Muslims, and Jews have uh, kind of been forced to live uh, together, and they've hated each other. Uh, Here in Omaha, Christians, Muslims, and Jews are choosing to live together for the sake of building friendship. So it really is um, a beautiful uh, kind of enterprise. The Temple Israel is the Jewish partner in the Tri-Faith Initiative. um, And it was Temple Israel uh, together with uh, members of the Muslim community in Omaha that really spearheaded this idea. My predecessor, Rabbi Aryeh Azriel, uh, who had been the senior rabbi of Temple Israel for 28 years until he retired a couple of years ago, was uh, was a prominent interfaith leader here in Omaha. And uh, after, uh, on 9-11, actually, um, on 9-11, uh, Rabbi Azriel uh, gathered a group of congregants from Temple Israel to uh, stand uh, vigil and in solidarity at a local mosque. Uh, to show their support for the muslim community on that day knowing that uh, the muslim community would be targeted because of what happened on 9/11 and out of out of that show of solidarity this beautiful friendship blossomed and uh, rabbi Azrael and leaders in the muslim community a- a- a developed this this idea of trifaith what if we could what if we could get uh Jewish congregation, a Muslim congregation, and a Christian congregation together for the purpose of building bridges and, and coexisting in friendship. And one thing led to the, uh, to the next, and over the course of, of a decade or so, this idea of the Tri-Faith Initiative came into being. We are now at the point where um, the Countryside Community Church, who is our Christian partner, has been building their new church on the Tri-Faith Commons, they're about to move in in a month or less. And once they move in, the three congregations will all finally be side by side. Um, it's really uh, an incredible thing to be a part of. In fact, right before I, l- I left to come to this interview, um, I was having uh, lunch with our Tri-Faith clergy partners. We, we get together uh, once a month for for lunch to just to talk about Theology and ideas for tri faith and and dream about what this initiative can be, and um, it's uh, it, it's not a special event, you know. It's not a one time thing. It's it's a way of living. It's it's about being a part of an extended family, and uh, it's really something special.
0: It does sound beautiful and a necessary proactive antidote to the fracturing of many aspects of our social uh, fabric at the moment, it makes me then think about the extent to which you see your responsibility to yourself and to your faith. And by that I mean you responded to a calling that was very deep and personal. And part of that calling is in service, and that is in service in leading an organization and ministering to a congregation. One layer out from that is this interfaith engagement that you've just described, is there another ring? Do you see some further responsibility to yourself and your faith to engage with people that you don't have this kind of direct relationship with? They they could be geographically dispersed. They may be religiously different. They may actually have some kind of antipathy towards you. But do you feel some calling to extend your ministry even further than it does at the moment?
1: Well, um, you know, that is... That is part of the vision and mission of the Tri-Faith Initiative. Um, the, the Tri-Faith Initiative, is, its work is uh, two-pronged, as it were. Its inward work is to cultivate this special relationship among these three particular uh, congregations um, for the sake of building friendship and being a light. To the world and a model of what religious life can be in in, in the 21st century. At the same time, uh, we our our outward oriented work uh, is about extending the idea of tri-faith, meaning the idea of religious pluralism and bridge building and affirmation of different pathways toward God and toward. Spiritual meaning and purpose to extend that mission into the broader Omaha community and beyond. We have grand designs for the Tri Faith Initiative, and we hope that it will become a model to the world, and that uh, and that it will be a beacon that attracts uh, attracts uh, religious people, uh, clergy, people of no particular religion at all. To uh, to the idea of being in relationship with people who are unlike you, because we believe that by engaging in relationship with with others who are different, who see the world differently and believe differently, that uh, we not only uh, enrich each other's lives, but we also become—we we find greater depth in our own religious commitments, in our own uh, relationship with God. Uh, so yes, that's certainly part of what we do. And the Tri-Faith Initiative is, is our arm for engaging in that work.
0: Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life By delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Rabbi Brian Stoller. Rabbi, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you, Stuart. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you having me.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation and the people that bring community to life.